Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great movies, so many great conversations. But it's a lot of work. Producing this show week after week does require a lot behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We had some great films in Season 8 that started their lives as books or plays, and you can find all of them on our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can find links to purchase all the source material behind the adapted films we covered from season one up through our current season. For part of season eight, we had a series celebrating the 50th anniversary of films from 1968. We talked about 2001 and 2010 for our Odyssey series, both adapted from Arthur C. Clarke's novels. Man, the second one was so much better than the first, right? Don't you even get me started. <sighs> Need I bring up Under the Cherry Moon again? Yes, also so much better. <laughs> wait, wait, no, that's not what I... <sighs> Planet of the Apes kicked off its series based on the novel by Pierre Boulet. We covered Danger Diabolic and The Detective, adapted from novels for our 1968 crime films. Wait, wasn't that The Detective the prequel to Die Hard? They were both written by Roderick Thorpe, and yes, it's the same character in the books. I can't believe they even asked Sinatra if he'd be in Die Hard. That would have been yeah. weird. <laughs> Uh, Once Upon a Time in America was part of our Leone Once Upon a Time trilogy, adapted from Harry Gray's novel. And we looked at 1968 Best Picture nominees The Lion in Winter, Rachel Rachel, Romeo and Juliet, and Oliver! We also had an Ingrid Bergman series with adaptations like Spellbound, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Murder on the Orient Express, and Gaslight. We haven't talked about Gaslight. Stop gaslighting me! <laughs> Dive deeper into these books and more adapted films at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations that we've covered on all the Next Real family of podcasts and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals.
is the next reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, some of us may live to see the sunrise in George Romero's 1978 classic, Dawn of the Dead. George Romero brings us the most intensely shocking motion picture experience for all times. It gets up and kills. The people it kills get up and kill. This situation must be controlled before it's too late. They are multiplying too rapidly. Dawn of the Dead. Meet me on the roof at 9 o'clock. Get out. I don't believe it. We're going to get out in the chopper. We've got to survive. Somebody's got to survive. They kill for one reason. They kill for food. They eat their victims. Imagine, if you will, that something has gone terribly wrong. Shoot it, man. Now, accept the fact that there's no escaping the horrible consequences. George Romero brings back the dead. Night of the Living Dead has ended. Dawn of the Dead is here. Andy, if you could uh, give us a little bit of a recap. Why are we doing this series uh, about the the zombies? 1968, uh, 50th anniversary, uh, Night of the Living Dead came out, and it was really kind of a genre-defining film. And uh, it took George Romero 10 years to continue. But uh, having a chance to uh, to kind of do more with what he had done before and find a way to develop, um, continue developing um, themes and just play around with uh, social commentary, I think is is a lot of why he decided that he would continue with it. So I know initially we talked about, you know, are we going to do horror films from 1968? But then when we looked at this uh, trilogy, this original trilogy that he had created, we realized that um, there's a lot of stuff going on within that full trilogy, and it's worth talking about, not just sticking with 1968 horror films. And so that's why we are doing the trilogy, and that's why we're talking about Dawn of the Dead tonight. In 1978, at least we can say we were alive, but neither of us were in the theaters watching this movie. You have a do you have a memory of 1978 that um, you can share share with people? <laughs> uh, bell bottoms and butterfly collars. Right. I know I probably was wearing those. <laughs> uh, I'd like to. I'd like to see that. Oh, look at some of my early little, school pictures. Little Andy to your little bowl haircut. Probably probably around the time when I was also I gave myself a haircut in one of those <sighs> pictures. So I've got that so really good. short bangs. Oh, it's you were fantastic. A peach. Pretty fantastic. <laughs> Oh yes. Oh yes. Well, it, it was a it was an interesting time, right? The end of the seventies. We're in the middle of the uh, of a uh, uh, energy uh, downturn that we we're leading up to in seventy eight, leading up to the seventy nine oil shock. Uh, it was the second major oil crisis of the seventies, thanks to the Iranian Revolution. We're in, so we're we have these images of uh you know of, of gas lines in carter's america you know and and that is a um that i find a really interesting image going into this movie some of the images that we see on the news uh you know as we're we're still reeling from uh war and we are dealing with crime and uh, you know in a post nixon america and uh leadership that is failing us and all of these things go into the mindset of you know 
of of the people making movies and how does how well does this movie in 1978 uh, actually reflect some of the the more popular cultural gestalt of the time and i think that to me is what is what makes this interesting and it's what makes zombie movies interesting in fact i mean you know you can put you, you can pretty much put any lens on a zombie movie and you can make it fit uh <laughs> the, the cultural discussion at hand and uh so i i, I look forward to that conversation uh, uh with you here in addition to that side of everything going on is this whole idea of shopping centers and and, uh, you know, all of the stuff going on with with Carter's America that you're talking about. But certainly I, I think this this rise of of the suburbs and with shopping centers that were away from city centers where people could go and and spend time. Um, it really kind of started building in, I think, in the 50s. I mean, there had been shopping centers long before that, but really it, it started kind of growing with some anchor stores and, and these big box stores in the 50s into the into the 60s. Uh, and I, I think it really had started taking off around that time and uh, and turning into something where people would go and, and hang out at the mall. And I, I think that is a key element for this film. And uh, aside from looking at what was going on in kind of uh, in the world um, politically and, and economically, I think this element is something that George uh, was really tapping into with the film. No, I, I think that's a great point. And, and that again is the, the sort of zombie lens, right? That we become, we became slightly before this period, an, an automobile nation right and it, yeah. it, we weren't like that uh, before i mean this is the growth of suburbs created uh, and and these malls these shopping centers and where these homes were just sprouting up in the middle of nowhere uh, we became uh, that culture and and how in how many ways can we look at zombie culture as a reflection of of you know suburban america uh, suburban Canada suburban like this is this is how we got to this point and I think that is uh, it, it makes this movie such an interesting uh, re reflection of the time really does yeah so let's uh, let's talk about the movie uh, it opens just three weeks after the close of the movie we watched last week Night of the Living Dead although that's never said in the film right I don't believe it's ever said in the film I think that's I, I read that in some of the background material but I think that 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 uh, the setup for this film is uh, I, I love the way that it plays out because you you basically walk into this film. There is already a zombie crisis that's happening. You're now dealing with people who are dealing with this and trying to figure out what is going on and how are they going to handle it. And it, the whole open just feels chaotic. We're in the newsroom. It's chaos. We're with the police dealing with the situation. That's chaos. Everything is just insane and chaotic. And the film really sets off on a foot that just makes you um, really brings you into that world of chaos. Well, I think one of the most interesting things to that point specifically about this movie is that we don't. Uh, when you think about what it was like to watch a movie in 1978, this the the immediate prequel <laughs> was 10 years its 
prior, right? <laughs> right? So it's not like people could just bring up Night of the Living Dead on iTunes or Netflix and catch up with the story as it ended in the last movie. Uh, and that defined, I think, some of the decisions that they had to make for the narrative in this movie. So for those who had seen Night of the Living Dead, there was, um, you know, it you didn't have to rely too much on on specific memories to keep the story going because all you need to know is there is a, there is a problem with humans eating humans and uh we're going to get you up to speed through this newsroom none of the characters from the prior movie are in this movie uh and so it's it's kind of a uh, you could say it's like a spiritual sequel if not a direct sequel uh it's a universe sequel if, if not a, a direct linear sequel. And, and I think that makes it, uh, it an, an interesting um, uh, sort of foray into this universe of zombies that might not be fresh for a lot of people. Well, yeah, it's, it's like Fear the Walking Dead uh, following right. up on The Walking right. Dead. Totally different cast, um, but it's the same zombie outbreak. It's just you know, now you're following a apart. different story. Yeah, right. And that's that's just a huge, a huge gap in time. And I think that Romero and his his team really were able to rely on just people's fascination with horror movies and with zombies and and just find find that thread to draw people in. And I mean, by this time, 10 years after uh, his his uh his film night of the living dead that we talked about last week i mean he had done other films he had done uh there's always vanilla season of the witch the crazies he mm-hmm. uh worked on a tv documentary he had uh and martin which came out i think uh, the same year as this film so he had been a busy filmmaker making projects that drew people in and he was establishing himself as a filmmaker with a certain sense of of style that uh, I think uh, allowed people to, uh, you know, look at a film with his name on it and know what to expect. Uh, we're so we're back in the television station and everything has gone crazy. And they they give us a couple of uh, elements in this television station that stick with us through uh, the duration of the film that I like a lot. And uh, the the first is it, in the last movie. He drove the narrative forward using radio and television broadcasts. And uh, so we were already anchored around this kind of mass media, right? Of course, during emergencies, we're going to have our our radio and television on, right? We're going to be trying to see what's going on in the world and how it relates to us right in our living room. And, and so that was expected. Here, we start in the newsroom. We start with our, our, you know, our eye on Francine, right? Franny is a producer and she is uh, working the, the newscast and she's working a talk show. It's an interview show between two experts uh, and it's like a debate show. So they're trying to to talk about, you know, what you have to do to these uh, to the zombies, what's going on in the zombie outbreak and the other side is trying to take the other side of the zombie outbreak. And it's not going well. Uh, <laughs> it's not not going well at all. It's not a position you you uh, you want to take trying to get that interview done. But that the interview is something that sticks with, with us through the, the duration of the film. We keep checking back into the mass media kind of reporting on uh, what's going on in the world. And as it turns out, 
when they stop broadcasting, that becomes a, an interesting data point in the film, too. I enjoy the the thread of the broadcast and, and the way that the broadcasts shift in quality as, yeah. we, as we progress. You know, uh, you know, you've got these broadcasts at the beginning. It's already chaos in the news station. Toward the end, it's just, I mean, it's it's like improv, uh, you know, TV production. Yeah. As, as people are trying to do stuff. And they've got this guy with the eye patch who just makes me laugh so much. <laughs> as he's, you know, he's kind of, he's got his little meditation that he's doing at the end. You know, uh, we've got to remain logical. We've got to remain logical. And just, like, this guy is, he's off his rocker. Um, but yeah, and, and the fact that these guys, you know, are, are heroes, are, are four characters, they get to a mall and they hide out. And then they have the TV on constantly. That is their outlet to figure out what's going on in the world. And I think that is another thing that spoke to George as far as, as people's connection to society. And it hits this point where all of a sudden there are no signals. And uh, uh, and I found that really interesting because it hits at a very critical point in the film when uh, when uh, Steve and Peter and, and Fran are basically, uh, you know, they're kind of this is a point where they're they are breaking down as people and uh, you know they have been living in a mall living in this kind of false life for so long and it's that moment where Fran turns the TV off and she tells uh, Steve who's always watching and he's just like there's nothing on it and in the middle of dinner and he gets up and he turns it back on and it's like that what are we doing to ourselves that whole moment I, I love the way that that kind of connected and came through uh, because of that connection to the TV. I, I do too. I, I love the way they that he brought that back and that statement that that makes. I thought that was really great. And I I would be remiss if I didn't bring up the station identification for her television station <laughs> is WGON. <laughs> and uh, I, I just, I, I got to chuckle through that all the way through, especially as they turned off the television, the static on the television. Yep. Yeah, that was a nice little uh, little forecast, a little foreshadow. <laughs> and we do get a nice little uh, cameo of, of George Romero and his wife in the news station as they are um, two of the people that are working the uh, in, in the control booth. Yes, it, with a crazy guy in the control booth who is like, I, I love that there's always this guy, this producer, this showrunner, this editor, whatever, station manager, whatever he is. But he's the guy who has to keep people watching the show in spite of everyone being eaten. And so we we learn very early in the movie, like within the first minute that uh, all of the rescue stations or half the rescue stations that they had keyed up to as their lower third identification uh, to send people to these rescue stations had already been overrun and were no longer operational. But he wanted to keep those broken ID IDs up on screen because he said, as long as they're on screen, people will still watch. As soon as we as we lose those uh, those keys, uh, then people are going to turn off the TV. and that. It sounds so ridiculous uh, that that is the thing that he's hanging his hat on. And yet that is, of course, it, that's the job uh, of uh, of the news at that point is to keep people watching. The fact that we're making a statement here about the negative impact of news, that the news is making a conscious choice to broadcast something that isn't true, that is literally fake news yeah. uh, in 1978, I think, is. It was a, a prescient and, and really troubling 
statement. You know, I think that that's something that that Romero really just has a lot of fun with because he's doing that with the news station. Immediately, we cut from the news station and we are following police on a raid in a building where some some gang has holed up or something. And you got the, the SWAT guys and everything. And it's like this incredibly violent shootout. And then all of a sudden, that's where we get to see the zombies because they make the mistake of going you know, through some of the wrong doors and there are zombies there and people start getting chomped on. And that's where we start getting a sense of the gore and everything. And and I think he gives us a lot of the gore. But what what struck me is an interesting introduction into that is the the horrible just uh, I guess I would just say racism and just everything that is wrong with that one particular cop who's just a terrible human being. And, um, you know, I think Romero is saying something through the eyes of that guy and, and us watching him as this cop who's busting in there. And then the fact that, yep, the zombies are going to eat him. <laughs> and he and we're going to go along with the ride and feel like he deserves it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, he's just right. the worst. And that's an interesting point, because I, I think right right out of the gate, Romero is is giving us a little leeway to to allow the zombies to not necessarily be completely scary. Sometimes the people are more scary. And, and like you just said, we're kind of rooting for the zombies to eat that guy. Yes. Yes. And this is the first time we are we get to see or get to sort of feel ourselves ask that question are we any better than they are are we any better than the zombies like this this is the world not a better place to have this guy taken out of it and that's a, a that's a, a i think a wonderful position to be in as a member of the audience to be put in a place to have to ask that question yeah yeah very interesting I, you know, it's interesting. I did say last week that I was less interested in the zombie films that that leaned heavily on gore and uh, at the expense of story. And I think this film leans more heavily on gore. And we get that early on in this sequence, right? We we get that here. We get that in a few, uh, you know, a few scenes later when they go into the basement of this building and see the the zombies and just like this orgy of eating each other. It's just disgusting. Uh, and they have to to kill those zombies. We can talk about that. Uh, we get it at the end. They save some of the most uh, delicious gore effects, uh, you know, toward the third act of the film, um, which are certainly worth talking about. But at no point do I get a sense that this film let go of the story that Romero was trying to tell um, in order to serve the effects. The effects, to me, served the the handling of the story and the narrative and and that it it demonstrated that they were able to continue to think deeply about the story they were telling uh and and what they observe in the world and not just lose complete control and and have way too much fun uh with with just watching people chew on each other that's something that romero uh, always focuses on. He likes having the subtext. He likes putting themes in his his films, and I think that is largely why this uh, trilogy and some of his other films, I, I think they stand out more because he is allowing the story to kind of be there, not just not not just the the themes, but the story and everything. And he's he's giving you a sense of all of that, and the way that this film plays out i think just gives a lot of that and we'll have to talk about the different cuts i I, i've never seen any of the other cuts except for the u.s theatrical 
Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, uh, you know, but I know the, of some of the differences with uh, specifically like the international version, um, that Dario Argento, um, uh, cut. So I, I think that it's interesting that this film allows for a lot of that. And I, I feel that that's an element of it that just makes it such a strong property. I do too. I, I like that it's it's as, making us ask these questions, these what if questions that that we're kind of facing right now. Like, uh, you know, what if if all structure, all sort of civic structure fell apart? And, and so here we go. We're asking this question. What does a family look like? We have this woman and three men. And one of them is a black man in 1978 trying to figure out how to to uh, build a family uh, in a world where so many of our assumptions of convention are gone. Right. And we have to we're, we're going to watch that. And in our heads as we're watching it, we're thinking, huh, I wonder what if what if in my life, what would this stuff look like? Uh, what does it look like to test our sort of themes of masculinity and femininity? You know, we have through Franny and Stephen, we have these great opportunities uh, to to kind of explore, um, you know, what it's like to have her stand up to assumptions that she is just a completely helpless whelp of a woman. Instead, no, she's a going to learn how to fly a helicopter and she's going to learn how to fire a gun and she's going to, you know, she's going to stand up for herself and she's not going to put up with these guys who are treating her as anything less than uh, because she is a a woman or be pregnant. And I I, I love that. Uh, I love that Stephen has a lot to learn from these guys who have this really traditional kind of view of masculinity. Uh, and and how does he fit in in this whole model? And, and so, um, you know, watching all of these things get tested in this movie, I think, are really fun. And of course, then we have them in the mall. And, and that gets to, to one of the central themes that you brought up, this consumerism and greed that the mall was an important place in their lives. You know, as the zombies start coming back uh, and here we have our the, the people who are living there trying to build this community. And yet all we really see of them is the same thing that we see of the, the bad guy bikers at the end. They're, they're just they're four people who are stealing stuff and eating the food and and uh, kind of really getting a lot of joy out of looting. And what is what do we learn from that? Yeah, it's it, it, well and. It's it just is so funny because watching this again really reminded me so much uh, all over again of how this film and and uh, the the films of Romero the zombie films really painted a very clear direction for zombie films and zombie yeah. stories afterward because watching this again I just had so many um, flash backs i guess you could say or flash forward flashbacks i don't know um of moments that happened in uh, the walking dead yes and how sometimes the zombies are the most horrific things that you have to face and sometimes it's the people that the the other survivors that are the ones that are the the real monsters yeah what an interesting most uh, of the time thing. it's the survivors yeah. <laughs> yeah what an interesting thing for romero to be pointing out uh back then and uh, I just, I, I really love it. I, I think that it's such an interesting look into society. And I, I just, uh, this is a film that I just, I really enjoy watching. And every time I see it, yes, there's some real, some real cheesy stuff. But man, I, uh, I just think that the story here is such a fascinating look at the world. 
The cheesy stuff, I'm with you. There's cheesy stuff. Some of the music is cheesy. But, you know, to me, all the cheesy stuff actually works in the narrative, too, because it's a celebration of the superficiality of the story they're trying to tell. I just it it works so well for me and and it fits so naturally. What do you think? This was a big question I had. What do you think about the smaller group right in in the remake, which we're we're both fans of? Yeah, which we've talked about. Exactly. We've talked about on the show. Uh, uh, There are more people in the uh, in the mall that take up residence in the mall uh, than we have here in our just our small group of four. Um, How does that change the, the way you take the story that they're trying to tell here? You know, I don't know if I have thought much about the difference in the cast sizes. I mean, definitely. I mean, I, this is just four people. That one probably had, I don't know, 10 people. Yeah. It was a pretty like big that. group of of people, if not more than 10, because I know um, there are more people within within the groups, uh, uh, the different people who get infected mm-hmm. and whatnot. Plus, there's the guy across the way in the other, in the other shop. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, there's there's quite a bit of stuff that's uh, going on in that. Um, but I don't, um, I don't know. I guess I, uh, part of me assumes that it's the nature of uh, kind of the lower budget still filmmaking and just having four is probably easier uh, for, for Romero as far as the storytelling goes. But I kind um, of feel like you're getting off too easy with that answer. I yeah, know you're right, no. but I, you know. I, <laughs> yeah, no, but well, and, and part of me also thinks that, um, when I think about it, just being four people in this huge mall, I, I can't help but wonder, you know, with huge spaces like this, uh, it's, it's like the first place that other people in society would probably, uh, assume is a great place to set up one of these, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, zombie, uh, rescue stations or whatever it is where they're, you know, protecting people from it it's a great place to set up uh and and have people say hey head here um that would be on the news as opposed to all the ones that apparently are already gone um but aside from that i don't know i i i feel like just having four just makes for a a cleaner story i guess i don't know if i have really any good answer for you well i don't know if i have a good answer either my i i just I, I found myself really finding a, a lot to love about the small cast because we get to spend so much time with them. Uh, at, at points, it feels like a little too much time and sort of intimacy that we get with them kind of rebuilding the the mall and taking out the bodies and more montages of making runs through bodies and through zombies shambling about uh, it, that, that I feel like maybe we were able to have a little bit more of a frenetic experience by having a larger cast in in the remake and it it just allowed us to bounce around a little bit more but i i found i really was leaning on the experience of being kind of a part of this family and and um you know really liking uh kind of watching them sort of work together in a way that that wasn't quite so um easy for my ADHD to adapt to you know what i mean like yeah. It, it it made me work a little bit and and i i like that made me have it, well, it felt like a much more patient structure well and and having four people um it gives you more time to spend with them like you were saying and when they're here for a, a prolonged period of time i would say they're here for i don't know a couple months or something i mean she she is you know her pregnancy is definitely yeah. starting to show by the time we get to the end of the film right 
I feel like it allows us time to really um, get a feel for the life that these people have had here and how it has transformed them. And, and you get those great comparisons where Fran is putting on makeup and then you get shots of the mannequins. And uh, even after she rejects Stephen's proposal, uh, there's a great moment where the two of them are kind of post-coital in the bed just sitting there and they are completely frozen just like mannequins. And it's almost like this is what's happening to them. This consumerism that has kind of taken over their brains has left them to be nothing but these hollow figures that are, are roaming the mall. And are they any better than the zombies by that point? That's right. That's right. So so to that end, I think that having just the four people and by that point, three gives us a good sense of this, um, loss of kind of this societal connection and uh i like that well and so i would i would say then as a horror film does having the smaller cast make it a, a more compelling experience we have three meaningful major well i should say two meaningful major deaths in this movie and one sort of almost death and uh i my hunch is that and my experience is that when Roger dies and when Stephen ultimately dies, those two deaths mean more because there were fewer people for me to care about in the movie overall. Is that a fair sentiment? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, Night of the Living Dead was what an hour and a half, and there were seven people there mm-hmm. who died. I mean, yeah, we didn't get to know the daughter really, we just knew she was sick. Uh, we never really got to know, um, tom's girlfriend very well mm-hmm. um yeah yeah i think that it's a fair assumption we're spending more time with these people we're getting to know them better because in this case we have roger who spends a lot of his time in a in a wagon uh but we know already what happens when you get bit because we now have experience from you know if you had a memory of the 1968 film and other films that have come up since or had come up in the interim, that you have a sense of when somebody gets bitten, something bad's going to happen to them. So you already are facing the pain of him turning. And then we get his ultimate death, which I thought was fantastic. Uh, as that, that entire sequence as, um, you know, it sort of builds and builds. And when his head finally comes up off the pillow uh, yeah. and, and we see what has become, I thought that was in a, a really moving uh, moment. For me, it, it always is when the blanket starts moving again. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, here it is. Yeah. I, I just love yeah. that. It's it's done so well. And actually, I think Stevens is, is great, too. Just the way I, I think they both work so incredibly well in different ways. Roger, because that look when he comes out of the blanket and you see that that great zombie look that he's got. It's fantastic. Um, But then Steven, I mean, he is he's another one. It's just his zombie. um zombie steven is is such a strong zombie the way that he walks and moves i think that he really got it and clicked well with that kind of uh vibe so i i I, it's two really powerful um character deaths that that uh change and move us forward and i think you know maybe now is an interesting time to just mention the original ending as romero had uh, thought of it he wanted to actually go dark again like he did with night of the living dead where all of this trauma was going to be too much for peter and, and fran 
um, Peter goes into the room as he does in the film uh, currently because uh, he can't take it and he's got a gun and he's going to kill himself. And Fran, she goes up on the roof and the helicopter is running and she sees the zombies come up, uh, not not Peter, who she's hoping for, and she throws herself up headfirst into the blades of the helicopter and decapitates <laughs> herself. Which is, which is, we should add a, a callback to a sequence earlier where we had had yeah. seen a zombie step up on a box and walk right into the blades, and, and so yep, choppy chop. Okay, uh, so yeah, uh, and and I think that I mean he realized. Um, as things were moving that this film already had a little bit more of a comical feel to it. And so he didn't want, he realized that going dark probably was the wrong ending for the tone that he was creating. And so he decided not to do that. And that's why all of a sudden you've got that kind of like that heroic, uh, as, as Romero describes it, the John Wayne music that kicks in when Peter turns his gun on the zombies and, and races out to go hop in the helicopter with Fran. It's very funny, but um, uh, man, I can only imagine what that darker ending would would be, though. You know, I do you. What's you? What do you think about the ending as it is, the theatrical ending? I mean, with the John Wayne music, da, 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 I mean, it's just it feels like yeah, yeah. It's 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 a little much, but I actually, I it's, a, it's something I've always questioned, and now that I know that that's how the ending was supposed to go, I'm like, oh, that's why Peter decided he was going to go into the other room. So I'm like, why is he making this choice? And I always felt like it was a strange uh, screenwriting choice to just allow for a little more um, energy in the escape. But um, but I like the ending. I like the fact that the helicopter's low on gas. Oh, the other part, which I think is an interesting element, that after she throws her head into the blades, the camera was going to hold on the helicopter blades and you would just watch them spin as the end credits rolled. And then the helicopter blades would sputter and die because the helicopter would run out of gas just to show you that even if they, they weren't going to the helicopter, they yeah. weren't going to get very far. Yeah. I, I think that's great. And I, I you don't get that sense with the ending now, but it is. I mean, she says we don't have a lot of gas and you know that they're not going to get too far. So I don't know. I I think it either way. I think it allows for an interesting ending. It's just now we've got a little more hopeful, open ended ending. Yeah. I, and I'm all about the hopeful bit. The, the thing that that really makes the film suffer for me is his actual escape from the zombies as you know, as they're you know shambling toward him after he manages to kill steven and he climbs the ladder and he comes out and he's he does his it's it's just kind of a cheap series of punches and kicks to to get him to the helicopter and it just it it becomes a a b movie <laughs> you know in in uh in its execution in this one little sequence just him getting out of the, yeah. the mall and to the helicopter and i it, it's one of those things that makes me like every time i think about it and i think about watching it with somebody else who's never seen it, it it's one of those moments i'm gonna have to say now just get past this part just close your <laughs> eyes and just get past this part and know he makes it to the helicopter because the end is really good. I love it when he's in the helicopter and I love it that she is the one flying it and that he's in the back seat and he is, you know, exhausted and rescued and it's great. Like that's, that's great. And it, it's actually, it, it's hopeful, but only in so far as, you know, we, it's open-ended. Like I love the way you put that. 
Everything else, I really suffer through that last bit. I, I you know, I, I can see why you do. I, I guess I have just always written it off as, yeah, okay, that's that's how it goes. It's never been a huge problem, but it is still just one of those things that I've always questioned, and uh, at least now I have an answer for it. <laughs> okay. I, like, I, I also like knowing that we have an answer for it. Uh, can we then at least talk about the, uh, the final route of the mall? Yeah, this is uh, it's a great bit with Tom Savini and uh, a bunch of real uh, motorcycle gang who break into the mall and because they see the helicopter, they see these people using it. I mean, it's it's exactly what you see in so many zombie stories afterward. And it's it's really done in just another going back to the chaos of the open. This is another just totally chaotic element at the ending that's just is like. I can only imagine how uh, they would react to that because it is a kind of a, a fully terrifying thing to be invaded like that by these people who clearly have no care of anything by this point. I mean, they're they're throwing pies in zombies faces. I mean, that's how <laughs> insane these guys are. They just they don't care. And, uh, you know, for for Peter and and Stephen and Fran to kind of go to war with them. Um, it's, I, I can only imagine how really terrifying it is. And it's, it, they're lucky that their little wall trick worked because otherwise they would have followed them right up to the top and killed them. I, I think that sequence, you know, for me, and maybe this is unexpected for me, that really works, especially the pies. Like I find that really funny because one thing that we're guaranteed, as soon as we see some bikers throw pies in zombie faces, we know those are the bikers that are going to get eaten first, you know? <laughs> uh, and, and so that is kind of the most fun. It's a, it's the reward of these kinds of sequences that you make it through the goofy stuff and you get a chuckle and then uh, voila dinner. And uh, and so I really uh, I really like that. And we get to see some of the best effects uh, so far of the series. Well, and that is, I think, the big thing that really got to rise with this. And certainly when you only have four uh, people that you're following in the film, that is where a horror film really does slow down, because all of a sudden you it's a lot harder to pick them off. Right. And that's why the remake has so many people so you have more opportunities to kill people off yeah here with four i mean we get to kill we get to kill roger but that's it and 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 until we get to this this ending and when finally uh, uh steven ends up getting uh, getting attacked and taken by the zombies but when we get all of these bikers to come in, we do really get to start playing around with the effects and the deaths and all of that. And yes, we get some just glorious, glorious um, um, makeup effect filled deaths. What are your favorites? Well, my favorite in the film is one that you mentioned already that isn't in the ending, but it's earlier with the helicopter chopping the, the blades, chopping the guy's head off or the top of his head off. I've always found that such a fun thing to watch. And I didn't ever realize how they did it. I was always just under the assumption that they they just um, figured out the exact height that somebody needed to actually stand up to chop off with a helicopter blade, which seems super unsafe to me. But I didn't put it <laughs> past these guys because we know they do things rather unsafely. Um, what they did is they actually had like a string around, they had this, you know, Savini had built this thing on top of his head 
that had a string through it and basically they just, like fishing line and they basically yanked it and that just kind of cut through it and, and basically chopped the entire top off that fell away. And, uh, and that was it. And he was nowhere near, um, getting hit by those blades. So I thought that was um, so, so much clever, more clever than what I had always assumed that they had done. Oh, that's really good. I, uh, so we also have the machete at the end. We get the, uh, the machete sequence, right, uh, which right. is fun. It's like taking out the seed from an avocado you know what I'm saying right smack it in there that's what that felt like and then and then the we have the most gruesome uh of the the eating where one of them gets taken down by a lot of zombies and they and there's just a lot of the ripping open of the intestines and and yep. gnashing of the and and my uh assumption there is that we're we've got more you know uh, pig intestines and a, a lot of those kinds of goodies a lot of those goodies that's right Right. Plus, we got a screwdriver into the ear, which is a really you know awful that thing was an interesting one because it was really slow. That was a a, a yeah. great effect because it was it just was it was very patient. Yeah, Savini, um, he is just a really interesting character. Who uh, actually, I didn't know this. He was actually asked to be a part of Night of the Living Dead, but he was drafted. And oh. uh, so that was kind of uh, that was kind of it. Uh, so um, so this is where he makes his debut as an effects artist on this film. And and he had done some some horror makeup uh, before this. But um, uh, and I think because of the time that he served in Vietnam, that kind of influenced what he would do. But um, yeah, I mean, here, you know, it was him and he had a team of, I think, eight people or so they would paint everybody's faces gray to two to 300 extras every weekend when they were filming these things. And, uh, they would just kind of go to town, but Romero was the, I mean, really it was the perfect pairing because Romero was very open to Savini just saying, yeah, do whatever you want. And they would always come up with ideas. Hey, we came up with this way to do it. Okay. Yeah. Let's play with that. And I think that is one of the reasons that uh, there's such a uh, creative vibe to so many of the effects sequences that uh, that he did here. Now, he had worked with Romero before on Martin, which I, as I said earlier, came out the same year, but he wasn't doing this type of effects in that particular film. He was I think he was acting in that one. This one took 10 years uh, to to actually pull together resources to get it made. Uh, how did uh, how'd Romero do it? Well, you know, like I said earlier, he didn't really want to do it. It wasn't until, um, interestingly, one of his friends owned this mall or, or had just built it and and gave him a tour of it. And that kind of gave him the inkling of an idea to to tell a story here. And then um, a friend of his, I think, uh, somehow he got a, a Dario Argento had heard that he was talking about doing a sequel and asked him if he, um, you know, if if Dario could could help him do it. And he said, uh, you know, yeah, sure. And so uh, Argento uh, kind of came on board uh, to, you know, just I think the agreement was Dario would get the international he would get the rights to the international version and, and he could cut it his own way. And um, uh, 
uh, and basically kind of help get it made. And so that was that was the way that it, uh, it, it Argento brought Romero to Rome so he could write the script and all this sort of stuff. And and so it was a great collaboration. And uh, but yeah, that's why there's a different international version because Argento. Um, got to use uh, the footage and kind of cut it. And and Argento didn't like as much of the expositional storytelling. He didn't like all those slower scenes. So a lot of that stuff got cut. A lot of the silly stuff got, like the music, that got cut out. Uh, he went with a much more direct, scary tone of a film. He had um, Goblin score it, which uh, Ar- uh, Romero uses some of Goblin's score, but largely he's still using a lot of the um the library music in fact the most brilliant piece is the a piece called the gonk which is that wacky tune that plays uh over the end uh which i just love and uh, uh edgar wright love because he he has used it as well but what's interesting about getting it made uh pete is that as you remember in night of the living dead he was working with john uh, russo well the two of them uh disagreed as to how this series should move forward. And um, because of this whole thing about Night of the Living Dead falling into the public domain, the two of them, I guess, despite the fact that they were disagreeing, they came to an agreement that they would go their own separate ways with the property that they had created in Night of the Living Dead. And Romero would have basically the rights to kind of uh tell the story his way with his zombies um but russo would be able to do his own version but he would keep the living dead portion of the title and so that's why we go from night of the living dead to dawn of the dawn of the dead the dead land of the dead dire of the diary of the dead survival of the dead whereas russo he went on to um, write some, uh, I don't know if they're books or comics or whatever, but he was doing something more literary and, um, he wrote return of the living dead. And that, when that was made into its own film, then the follow-up escape of the living dead. And, and that's why there's those two divergent paths that came from this and why you don't have any more living dead in Romero's side of things. Well, that is a fantastic parting of the ways. Very interesting. I, you know, I will say, uh, speaking of all these different cuts, and that you and I have only seen, you know, the the U.S. theatrical cut, I, I'm very interested. If anybody else has seen the other cuts and wants to weigh in on this, jump in to our, our Discord community and link in the show notes and check it out. There is the, the YouTube link that I have posted in the show notes here uh, for this show is called the Extra Long Version. I don't know what that means, but somebody uh, has posted it on YouTube and they call it the extra long version. And apparently there's other stuff in there. I don't know if that's the Argento version. It's not the version I watched. No, Argento's is shorter. Um, If if it's anything, it is the um, the original like director's cut, because um, when he did the first cut, which played at, uh, I want to say it played at a festival or something that was, um, a hundred and, oh, let me find it. Hold on. I just have to say, while you're looking for that, there's, I, you can click around and look at one of the sequences there. There's a nun, a zombie nun in it that 
goes after Franny. Uh, there is um, there's a sequence where you know uh, Richard is. Um, trying to hotwire the car in the mall and his leg is hanging out the back and a zombie comes up and grabs the bandage and it explodes of blood as the zombie's thumb goes into it. So that I think is different. There's just a lot of gore stuff in the, particularly in the mall scene that, that is a real standout material. Argento, Argento did cut um, quite a bit of the gore, the, the heavy gore out. Uh, yes. Oh, so the the original version was 139 minutes. That is now known as the extended or the director's cut. Um, that was for its premiere at uh, 1978 Cannes Film Festival. Then he cut it down to 127 minutes for the U.S. theatrical release, which was uh, released unrated. And then Argento cut his version down uh, to 119 minutes. So he he cut an additional eight minutes out, um, but because um allowing you know him to kind of control the international cuts there were a lot of other variations in international lengths because other countries would say you can't release it with that you can't release it with this and so my understanding is there's like nine or ten different um length versions of cuts of this film this one is a hundred and fifty nine minutes this one that's linked in our show notes. So interesting. That's a really long one. It's right. It's very, very long. And so, but there is a lot of good stuff in there as I'm zipping through it. There's a lot of delicious, delicious zombie dining in here. So if you're interested <laughs> in it, but the other thing that we have noted uh, as we post uh, YouTube links of some of these more difficult to catch movies is that th- there may be some sort of a content ID thing going on. So as soon as people go and watch these movies on YouTube, YouTube somehow becomes aware, like it wakes up and uh, notices that these movies exist and then suddenly they're pulled. So I don't know if this one is going to, you know, hit that fate. But if you are interested in seeing this particular cut, you should watch it sooner rather than later, because who knows if it's going to be there in two weeks. Um, you know, just a, a last little note about uh, some of our cast members. It's it's a great little core cast of four: David M. G., Ken Forey, Scott Reininger, and Galen Ross. Um, at least two of those, Ken Forey and Scott Reininger, both appear in the Dawn of the Dead remake, which is uh, good to know. Ken Forey played the uh, oh, who was he? He was a guy like a televangelist, I believe. <laughs> right. Okay. And, and uh, Scott, and Scott Reiniger. Reiniger is the general. Okay. Uh, how to do an award season. <laughs> uh, this was uh, one of those films that is going to get noticed by places like the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films, our friends over at the Saturn Awards, who, of course, nominated Tom Savini for Best Makeup. Um, surprisingly, uh, maybe, I, I guess, uh, he did not end up winning. The win of all things was Love at First Bite. Uh, William Tuttle's work on that film. <laughs> no. Um, seems strange to me that that's the one that won. And interestingly, what? that also beat Star Trek The Motion Picture and Alien. Wow. What's so funny about that is that I, I feel like that year, that would have been, it, it would have been Love at First Bite that I would have, certainly would have seen more readily than any of these other movies. And come on, <laughs> what are you, you going to do? George Hamilton. Right, Susan St. James. <laughs> what? Oh, Still, dear. Yes. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, it, it's weird. 
shocking, straight up shocking. Uh, and then also at the Golden Screen Awards over in Germany, this film did win uh, the Golden Screen Award. So um, that was it for for awards at the time. It since uh, has won some awards for like best DVD release and things like that. But um, you know, I, I I love to see at least that Tom Savini got some recognition for the work that he did here. What? How did it do uh, in the box office? Did Love at First Bite actually have any sort of impact on it at the box office? <laughs> well, I can't tell you that, Pete. But with the incredible success of Night of the Living Dead, Romero went into his sequel with a budget more than 13 times bigger. He had $1.5 million, which is $4.9 million in today's dollars. The movie was released April 20th, 1979. So it actually, it, it was one of those funky things where it had a 1978 release, but it didn't really get a release till 1979. In a month that was populated with much lighter releases, a perfect couple, an almost perfect affair, a little romance, and Manhattan. The timing likely had something to do with its popularity, but it was also clear that people wanted more gross-out zombie action because the film went on to make 5.1 million domestically and 49.9 million internationally. That adds up to about 182 million in today's dollars, making the film a resounding success and leaving Romero's second film in the trilogy with an adjusted profit per finished minute of 1.4 million dollars. Not, uh, not a bad haul. No, not at all. Not a bad haul at all. Uh, I think, Andy, that this uh, this has been a, a treat to watch again. And I, I remembered it after we talked last week, the last time I watched it was when we did our conversation on uh, uh, on the, the remake of this film and um, had the opportunity to, uh, to sort of fall in love with it again. I really enjoy this movie, and apart from just a few sequences that make me cringe a, a little bit. I, I love what it has to say. Uh, and... Uh, and and again, following up on last week, it it maintains its relevance. That's the thing is that um, as cheesy as I find certain elements of the film, um, I I find none of it really problematic because it all works so well in context of the story that uh, that Romero is telling here and the themes that he has. So uh, it's it's a good one. It's one that I love. And with that, I think it's time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see the list of all of the movies that we've talked about on this show. Uh, and you can or you can just swipe over uh, in your show notes, tap the word flickchart, and it should take you straight to this movie over at flickchart. And you can add it to your catalog and see how it stacks up against ours. First up, we have Dawn of the Dead or the girl with the dragon tattoo knew me. Dawn of the Dead for me. Yeah, I'll go with Dawn of the Dead. Dawn of the Dead or Fargo. Well, that's harder. Man, this is the this is the wall we ran into last time. Um, I've got to go with Fargo. It hurts. All right, I'll give you Fargo. Dawn of the Dead or Mother? Dawn of the Dead. I I love Mother, but Dawn me of too. the Dead for me. Yeah. Dawn of the Dead or City of God? City of God. Yeah, that's man. <laughs> man. man. Dawn of the Dead or Escape from the Planet of the Apes? I am Dawn of the Dead. I am Dawn of the Dead. Dawn of the Dead or Forrest Gump? I am Forrest Gump. I'll, I'll give you Forrest Gump. Dawn of the Dead or Night of the Living Dead? This is, this is a good battle, Pete. Uh, I'm uh, Dawn of the Dead. I am too. Oh, 
Well, it wasn't that great of a battle. It wasn't, but it's something <laughs> that I, I'm always curious about. Like, what, which of the of Romero's dead films do people hold in highest esteem? Yeah. Um. I I I think Night of the Living Dead is an absolute classic, but Dawn is the one that I've returned to so many times. Yeah. I mean, as much as Dawn cements so much of the the you know the the rules the the lore and the rules of the zombie like it's it really yeah and they use the word zombie for crying out loud like it's just it it's like finishes the story that that night started yeah dawn of the dead or glenn gary glenn ross i am dawn of the dead here oh what okay what's happening (laughs) (laughs) i am glenn gary glenn ross (laughs) that's okay I am fine with you picking that one, and I'm okay. fine if it wins, but I'm still okay. picking Dawn of the Dead. I was just a little bit surprised. Okay, here we go. All right, one. One, two, two three, scissors. Rock. Okay, I tried. There it is. Dawn of the Dead or Wild Tales. Dawn of the Dead for me. Dawn of the Dead. Well, that lands Dawn of the Dead at 123 on our chart, and it bumps Night of the Living Dead to 126, so it's just... A hair ahead of its predecessor. Well, I I think, uh, first of all, what does that do to your personal chart? On my personal chart, it lands at 119 out of 4,053, which is about a 97%. Yeah, something broke on my chart because I feel like mine should be up there, but it ended at 304 uh, out of 1,041, which is about a 71%. So something is amiss. Uh, that that happened but the bigger question is how does 1978 dawn of the dead uh, hold up against 2004 dawn of the dead i did not look at my flick chart uh to see where uh the remake stands but this film is by far it it's my uh favorite of uh between those two well, and, uh, you know, we were fans of the remake. Like, we oh, came yeah, out absolutely. definitely in favor of the remake. I also would prefer this film to the remake, but it turns out not by as much. This ended exactly one spot higher than wow. the remake, Dawn of the Dead. Is that interesting? Funny? Yeah. That's that was interesting. The, uh, yeah. It was my last uh, or second to last rating and uh, or comparison. And so... That's where it landed. So uh, if I were to go strictly by the algorithm uh, over for uh, letterbox.com slash the next reel, this would be a three and a half star film for me. I disagree with that. And I'm going to go solidly uh, into the four and a half star with a like. I um looking back at letterbox. I actually gave the remake three and a half stars, um, which I, I think is probably right. Um, I, I need to watch it again to see if it might actually rank a little higher. Mm-hmm. But for this film, this is one that I have uh, really just loved forever. And even um, with some of the, uh, as I've said before and gotten in trouble, some of the, the quibbles I might have with it. You're um, giving it five I, stars. I think this is something that is is kind of a perfect for what they're trying to do. I really <laughs> love it. Five stars <laughs> and a like from me. <laughs> Okay, you can have it. I I feel okay <laughs> being skewed north on this one. I'm okay. I just can't like literally when we look at where it the stars started to fall, it is in Peter's escape from the mall. 
uh, that is that is worth That's a half a good star sign for me. That it lasted until yeah. the last like three minutes of the film. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I'm okay with this. I feel comfortable with this. Good. Uh, so well done, uh, Andy. But, and and now we get to the movie that I have not seen in a long, long time. Where do we go from here? We are going to be looking at the final film of this original trilogy. Um, and you know, I uh I'm looking forward to watching Day of the Dead again. Yeah, like you, um, I have seen well, interestingly, I, I think Dawn of the Dead I had seen just countless times. It was actually the first of the trilogy that I ever watched. Then I saw Day. And then I saw Night, but I think Night and Day I had only seen one time before we started this series. So I am very much looking forward to jumping back into Day of the Dead from 1985 just to check that one out again. And I, my recollection is I really enjoyed it. So I'm curious to revisit. It's coming. It's coming. I, my memory of it is that there were some bits that I liked, but uh, otherwise it was it was forgettable. And I... I don't know. I look forward to being tested. I do too, because I don't remember it being forgettable at all. And I'm really curious now <laughs> to have a conversation with you about it, because I think it's a lot of fun. Bring it on. And if you would like to hear more of us, but you can't wait until next week's show, you can support us over on patreon.com slash the next reel and get access to our exclusive members only weekend show, the Saturday matinee. We talk about movie news and new trailers. Plus, we go head to head in our weekly challenge in which we put together lists of movies related in some way to the movie we're discussing that week. There are all sorts of other goodies, too, if you support us at different levels. Just head on over to patreon.com slash the next reel. You can learn more about us and check out the detailed show notes at thenextreel.com. You can subscribe for free in your favorite podcast app and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at The Next Reel. And if you want to get into the conversation yourself, join our Discord channel for a whole lot of movie chat with movie lovers from around the world. You can find the link to join in the show notes or on the website. The Next Reel couldn't happen without the hard work of Stephen Smart, who runs Instagram. Ben Lott, who runs all things Twitter. And thanks to Eli Catlin, who graciously allows us to use his song Ragtime Instrumental as the theme to the show. You can find out more about Eli on his SoundCloud page. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Amazon, uh, there are some people who like to talk about this movie in the one-star range on Amazon. There are. Yes, there are. <laughs> they, uh, they're enthusiastic commenters. What? Uh, which review are you going to mark as helpful tonight? I am looking at ZombieFan1212's review. ZombieFan1212 says, when the director gets drunk, they make movies like this and gives it one star. This is a piece of crap. What the hell is everybody thinking? The zombies all look the same. The special effects aren't very special. The acting is terrible. Romero fails to tackle consumerism. How can this be a classic? 
Now, the start of the movie is just boring and pointless. Dozens of people in a news studio are just yelling and screaming endlessly. People are turning into zombies all around the world, and one man cares about nothing but his ratings. Just stupid. It seems to me that the zombies in the movie were the worst done in any movie. They moved incredibly slow. Slower than night, Resident Evil, and day. They were uninteresting. They do not scare the audience. In fact, the viewers laugh at them throughout the entire movie. This movie is nothing more than a terrible comedy. I didn't realize this movie had gore. I know it had pink liquid, but not gore. Then it had this stupid thing where the zombies were afraid of fire. Zombies would not be afraid of fire. Romero just can't think of things that make sense. Whoever scored this movie did a terrible job. It was ridiculous. <laughs> Let's ask God to strike Romero down before he finishes his fourth dead film. His first three were crap and complete failures that hardly made money. What makes him think his fourth one will do good? <laughs> wow. A plea right. to the people oh. from Zombie Fan 1212. Oh, and to God. That's it, a yes. good way. It's a, a bringing uh, religion right. into He's the zombie He's to the film. people to help ask to help. God. Let's ask God to Everybody strike Everybody ask God, yes. Smite him in his director's chair. Well, I have Nikki who writes in, uh, please, this movie is like Dawn's of the Downfall. You'd have to be a zombie to consider this excruciatingly long, badly paced, terribly acted, repetitive, ridiculous, and horrifyingly unscary chore of a movie as entertainment. A scathing indictment of 20th century consumerism, proclaim the critics. A horror classic, scream the fanboys. Shoddily made balderdash, say I. Where's the buildup? Where's the apocalyptic atmosphere? Where's the horror for Pete's sake? You can't expect anyone with a sense, with any sense to be amused by the irony of a homicidal Harry Krishna one minute, then be genuinely shocked by awful munching extras the next. It must be true that hell must have been full for a while in 1978, because not only did the dead walk the earth, they managed to get their clammy hands on some inferior movie-making equipment. Ouch! I give them credit for using the word balderdash. <laughs> yes! <laughs> balderdash. Uh, I, I also give them credit for using awful, uh, because that is not a word that I use often, and so had to figure out how to pronounce it on the fly there. I think I, I, think I, think I did okay. Awful, right? I think it's awful, yeah. Awful yeah. munching. But yeah. you don't see that word uh, very often. I, uh, I thought you picked it because they used your name, for Pete's sake. <laughs> Andy, low hanging fruit, man. I got to grab those I, when I can. If I were that, that would be, I, I, yeah, no. If I had to stoop to <laughs> to those kinds of things, I'd be, I'd be in pretty sad shape, my friend. Pretty sad shape. I don't really have a comeback for that, Andy. Um, I'm gonna let you go to sleep on that. So good. <laughs> Thanks, Amazon. <laughs> I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I have tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. 
and their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.